Hello, friends. <laughs> so, welcome back. Today we're going to talk about cognitive sovereignty, which is a, a, a cluster of related ideas that I think are very useful. And actually, uh, I would uh, advocate for them to be utilized not only, you know, in kind of existing uh, think tanks, but also I think they it might be a really great kind of like coordination technology for future think tanks if you ever intend to, you know, found one or, or be part of one. Uh, but also it's something that, uh, you know, we aspire to live by at, at QRI. Of course, we're all humans. We make, you know, mistakes sometimes like we may not follow everything that we aspire to. But really, you know, the, the idea is to basically set up these ideal, you know, incentive structures and ideal uh, kind of like motivations. Um, so that in a sense, yeah, we can see how much we deviate from it uh, and adjust accordingly. Um, part of the philosophy here is we want to, in a sense, cultivate everybody's best part. You know, that would be kind of a, what I, I, how I would think about it, that, you know, ultimately we are all collections of sub-agents of all kinds of things uh, with all kinds of intentions, you know, levels of integrity, levels of patience, levels of love and so on. And rather than, you know, cataloging people as good or bad um i think like a much more helpful paradigm is hey can we how can we incentivize the good within people and yeah basically cognitive sovereignty really aims to do that and i'll explain it to you in a second but first the quilia of the day is long walks on the beach uh which uh i highly recommend in case you haven't done that uh ever i find you know most people have uh, probably most of the people who have a computer right now, you know, who are watching my videos probably have at some point in their life, you know, had a, a long walk on the beach and it's uh, really, really cool. So recently I discovered that actually where I live is within walking distance to a actually really pretty and, and fairly deserted uh, beach. Um, I made a video recently where, where I'm uh, kind of like at the shelling point there. Basically, you, you walk quite a bit and you find like this kind of like interesting place with a lot of like erosion curves that kind of like sets it apart from like the rest of the beach. Um, which yeah, kind of like makes it a natural shelling point for people who are in the beach, obviously, you know. Um, and uh, one of the, the things that kind of these made me realize is that, I don't know, really internalizing the importance of kind of the extra mile. <laughs> and, and here's the thing, like I, I used to go for like long walks, you know, like one hour, like 90 minute walks, not super long, but like, you know, like decent walks. Um, and used to, you know, go to one place uh, somewhat nearby here and like, okay, like I can walk, you know, like 90 minutes and get to this like pretty hill, you know, and it's a very beautiful hill with a very scenic view, you know, and, and I used to do that. And that was kind of like the reward of going all the way to, to, to that place. Um, but then I found out if I also walk, you know, maybe just a half an hour more or 45 minutes more, I can actually just get all the way to this beach, right? Um, so like, I think of that, uh, it may apply in quite a lot of places, like for example, like uh, studying a subject, you know, you may study this amount, you'll get like some interesting, you know, leverage out of that, but you study a little bit more and you actually start getting kind of the, the non-linearities, the interactions between the ideas in the field and oh gosh, actually it's, uh, it's much more interesting in that way. Or uh, meditation, for example, uh, or, you know, exploring phenomenology. You could, you know, meditate this much and go to a place that has a pretty view, or you could meditate this much and go to a paradise or a heaven realm, right? And 
like sometimes the extra mile actually matters matters quite a bit and uh, I think that's uh, yeah just something I wanted to share um, when it comes to long walks on the beach um, I would highly recommend taking off your shoes and your socks uh, for the full experience you know you don't you don't want a barrier between you know your feet and and the sand you know it's actually a, a very crucial part of the of the experience and also considering the uh, component of your homunculi you know that actually uh, contains high definition you know tactile sensations from your feet yeah it's, it, what a waste if you don't take off your feet um, of course for the full experience uh, you know some people recommend taking LSD maybe a moderate or small dose of LSD um, um, and especially if you have good reactions to, to that you know that that's a good thing to combine with a long walk on the beach they <laughs> they go hand in hand they go well together usually um, there are some caveats if you're prone to psychosis and things like that it actually might be pretty dangerous um, you should do it very supervised um, but uh, yeah I mean something that I find kind of like very beautiful is that the beach actually contains just so many examples of you know universal features of dynamic systems and, and physics and and uh, you know I think it's very beautiful like uh, the video I made recently was about erosion curves to kind of like I don't think I explained it very well but the main idea was that you know like uh, when you have kind of like these uh, you know rock formations and you have like air constantly circulating around it I mean of course the parts that are like softer you know will erode more quickly and you yeah, know that, that's part of like what makes the erosion curves but there's something else that is interesting and non-trivial which is that um, as the air, uh, in a sense, uh, erodes the curves that, in a sense, m move the air in a way that increases erosion, well, what happens then is that those kinds of curves are actually not self-sustaining. Whereas the kinds of curves and formations that minimize further erosion, you know, they're, in a sense, self-protecting themselves. So over time the the curves that you will see that exist will be precisely those that minimize further erosion and the thing that is beautiful that connects this to the free energy principle is that in a sense then the curves that are minimizing erosion will be sort of like a reflection of the actual dynamics of air currents which is this whole idea of the free energy principle that for a system to survive it needs to in a sense be minimizing entropy injections from its environment and to do so, it has to implicitly be modeling the environment, you know, and adapting to it. So erosion curves, a completely dead thing, right? But in the erosion curves, you will find an implicit model of air currents, you know, and I, I find that beautiful. I, I just, I, I think it's fascinating. Um, you know, in, in the beach, you will also see kind of like dunes of, of, of sand uh, when there's like a lot of air, especially when people are not walking there, you know, you see these dunes. Well, that's an example of self-organized criticality. Another, you know, super important, uh, super general aspect of, uh, of uh, physics and dynamic systems. Um, another, I don't know, definitely much more like poetic here is this idea that like, you know, most of reality is actually empty space, which is ultimately like quantum foam or these kind of like you know, like quantum vacuum, quantum quantum void, um, and uh, you know, matter might actually be kind of a a tiny, almost kind of like a rounding error in like what is actually going on in the universe. You know, even all the with the black holes and galaxies and interstellar medium and all of that, you know, it's still a tiny fraction of what the universe is is all about. And I think a, a metaphor with the beach is that uh, basically, if you think of reality as kind of the huge body of water of of of, of the ocean. 
and then maybe you know matter and like the things that are happening here <laughs> in the surface at the edge is kind of the, the the foam that forms when the water is like you know hitting the the, the sand and so on so a uh, tiny tiny uh, a thin film of foam um, relative to a huge 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 reality so that, that's another kind of cool metaphor here um, okay hopefully the sound quality is uh, is decent uh, also ginger juice to, to carry me through because this might be a bit of a, a bit of a long discussion potentially so um, I'll make it as short as I can, but there's a lot of material to go through because this is a very important concept, not only for us, but potentially for the world. Okay, <laughs> but going on on the beach, uh, smooth pebbles, you know, in a sense, there's also quite beautiful that in a, in a way, like all the roughness in the surface of pebbles, like naturally and, you know, without human intervention, just gets polished by the interaction of the rocks with each other. And, and the water as, as you know, they, 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 they collide against each other. And over time, in some sense, you could say you're losing information because you're losing the roughness around it. But at the same time, you're actually gaining a view into the essence of the rock, which is what the rock is actually made of. You will see the, the matrix of crystals uh, when a, a rock is like very well polished. And, uh, you know, it's kind of this crazy metaphor here of like annealing, you know, like if you meditate a lot, you achieve cessations and and and, and uh, get enlightened <laughs> there's many conceptions of enlightenment obviously but in pretty much any of those it's kind of like a highly annealed brain and you could say well in some sense you're like smoothing out what makes you unique one one way of seeing it of course the Buddhists will say well there's no self to begin with there was you know whatever made you unique was not you fundamentally <laughs> um, but yeah no I mean for sure there's like some loss of information and maybe some loss of like you know conditioned personality which could be pretty good like let's not let's not uh, uh underestimate that but um it will in a sense make your essence shine because of the smoothness of it in a sense allows you to see through so yeah when i see like a lot of pebbles and they're like all polished there's a yeah there's some beautiful poetic metaphors there uh, i guess a, another really cool thing is uh you get a cellular automata in some of these uh, some of these uh, shells and uh, again like well this is maybe more of a computationalist aesthetic rather than a physics uh, aesthetic but but still I mean this might be one of the the rules that uh, Wolfram talks so much about about like linear cellular automata with time evolution um, I guess like yeah finally uh, you know you you see something be really beautiful too which is in a sense you have the interaction between air and water that's a big part of what makes a beach. And then you have air and sand interact with one another, like the dunes I was talking about. And then you have the sand and the water interacting with each other, like the pebbles. Uh, and they all have their own unique, you know, like phase of matter interactions with uh, beautiful consequences. And they're all constantly being energized by light, right? Photonic <laughs> radiation. And well, of course, during the day, and like the energy flow and so on, of course, is being animated by the light ultimately. But yeah, basically a huge amount of, you know, interesting energy exchanges and, and dynamic systems that happen on the beach. So anyway, uh, I'd love to uh, take you on a walk <laughs> on the beach next time we meet. Um, uh, well, and these are, uh, you know, at a personal level, uh, and this is kind of like where it will start connecting with uh, cognitive sovereignty. Uh, so, uh, I'm very proud of my grandfather, uh, from my mom's side. I 
proud of all my family. But yeah, I mean, my grandfather was a pretty special person in 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 a in a you know in, in a number of ways. I mean, he was a, an incredible diplomat, uh, just like knew what to say in every social situation that would actually make people uh, not only happy but actually you know get to like a resolution. He was an excellent mediator. Um, uh, without like you know having to just be super agreeable all the all the all the time, he was just like yeah, v very good at understanding what people wanted and how to find the equilibrium of forces in a in a social environment. And uh, he was a, a, an oceanographer. I mean, he uh, was born in Iceland, but you know he he ended up like studying uh, mathematical physics PhD in Norway, and then he became a an oceanographer and um, uh, traveled around the world uh, with his family for. For like various jobs, <laughs> research jobs on the ocean, um, and uh, you know he used to tell me a lot about the ocean. You know his uh, subject of interest, and um, uh, and he was uh, ultimately the what is it called like the leader of or the manager of like research vessels for UNAM, you know the University uh, Autonomous National of Mexico, and. Um, uh, there's like yeah quite a bit of uh, interesting uh connections here like one thing I'll, I'll mention is that uh, uh I, w I was just like very fortunate to actually live close by to my grandfather his name is uh ingvar emilson you'll recognize emilson from my from my name um because you know even though i was a kid you know maybe eight years old or so on like he he used to like just share with me so many cool scientific facts uh like you know he would ask me things such as like what is uh, heat or like what is uh you know what, what does it mean for something to be hot or let's say what does it mean for something to be cold and then we say like well um this is, i don't know you know eight year eight year old kid or a seven year old kid is like w w i'm not sure i don't know what it means for something to be cold exactly or fundamentally and he says oh it's the absence of heat or the absence of of it being hot he's like oh okay fine <laughs> what does it mean for it to be hot he's like uh is it the absence of cold no <laughs> It's vibration and jiggling of molecules and atoms. So, and that, that that's a, that's kind of a, something that really stuck in my mind. Uh, and he would do that all the time. He explained to me like you know why ice floats, uh, having to do with the geometric organization of water molecules when they freeze and actually you know the density goes down. Uh, he taught me like how to derive the golden mean. You know use you know you you just need a little quadratic equation to do that. And like I was very happy to not only know that they are beautiful, but also, you know, like how to derive the precise, you know, like what, what is like the golden, golden ratio exactly. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, as an oceanographer, I mean, he, he used to explain very much that a beach is actually a very rare environment. It, you require the equilibrium of a lot of forces. And again, you know, air, water and sand uh, and you know particular temperatures and and particular types of currents because otherwise you know a beach doesn't form um, like beaches come and go actually the, the the conditions for beaches are not always met um, and there's like a lot of counterintuitive things here where like you may think that well the stronger the waves are the more you know the sand will be like you know thin and polished it's actually the opposite like the stronger the currents are the more you just see large pebbles because like the tiny grains have actually been taken out into the sea. Um, so actually when you see like very, very fine, like very refined sand, that means that there's going to be like kind of like this sand bed that extends quite far into the ocean. 
that prevents actually the thin sand just being taken over by the currents. And I want to use this as a metaphor for why it's actually so hard to have a high quality think tank or a community of people that are actually capable of thinking new thoughts. <laughs> it's very rare. Like you, you, you see there's lots of think tanks, lots of academic departments, lots of places where allegedly, <laughs> you know, people are being paid to think new thoughts, but then you actually see the publications and like, well, this is just a remix of what's uh, out there in the literature. Um, and, you know, there are places where people think new thoughts, but then like oftentimes they're really just crackpot ideas. And that's also something that you want to completely avoid. So how do we actually make, you know, a think tank that is capable of thinking new thoughts in, in the best way possible? And that is cognitive sovereignty. So <laughs> cognitive sovereignty basically has three pillars, uh, three kind of like separate components. And uh, basically what I'll say is that you require to wear several kinds of hats to actually embody and be able to uh, actually use these three pillars in a synergistic rather than adversarial uh, dynamic. Uh, and here's another yeah, you know, anecdote from my grandfather that is really relevant here. You know, I, I must have been like five years old when I asked him this question. I mean, in retrospect, I'm sure it was a very rude question, but basically I remember that, you know, that's a time when I used to struggle a lot with the na you know, nature of death. Like I wanted to live forever and uh, just very sad that people would die. I was very sad the fact that, you know, my family was going to die at some point everybody goes through that I, I it hit me really hard I would say when I was a kid and um, and I asked my grandfather like hey aren't you sad that you're old like aren't you sad that you know you might die pretty soon and uh, and his answer was actually amazing his answer was no I'm not sad I'm actually happy <laughs> that I now have been have had the chance to experience what it's like to be a person at every stage in life. Uh, that was his response. And it really struck with me. I mean, like this thought of like, well, actually <laughs> having had the experience of, you know, being at every stage in life is actually a huge, I don't know, it's a beautiful thing. And yes, it's sad that it will end, but also it's good that it happened. At least if you have a good life, obviously. Um, and, um, Basically, <laughs> you know, I'm 30 years old. I've, I have obviously not reached, you know, my peak wisdom. You know, I'm working really hard to try to, to be as wise as possible without forcing it, obviously. But uh, um, there's like many stages of, of uh, human development. And I definitely think that, you know, actually being exposed to, with, to a lot of like subcultures or, or, or communities that actually take ideas seriously, I do think like it accelerates this, uh, this uh, development. I very much think that, yeah, I mean, basically <laughs> really wrestling with these kind of deep ideas actually are, is beneficial for, for personal development of, of that kind. Um, so again, I'm not going to pretend, you know, I'm a wise old man, but I will point out that that's a very important energy or set of attitudes or kind of hat to wear. Uh, so cognitive sovereignty has three pillars and I will basically assign to each of those pillars a different stage in life. 
what the positive version of that stage in life actually would entail. So the first one is uh, being a kid, <laughs> actually. Uh, you know, it's, and uh, the values of kind of like playfulness and, um, and uh, kind of like this yes and attitude to like when people give you suggestions and ideas and you're excited by actually using your mind in new ways and experiencing things in a novel way and experiencing the interactions of things like the whole Quilia chemistry I've been talking about. So uh, I would call these freedom of thought slash uh, freedom of feeling. So the idea is that if you want to have a think tank that actually produces new thoughts, you have to not only tolerate and allow, you know, new thoughts. Ideally, you would actually celebrate them. You would encourage them. You would enjoy them together you know and of course there's a there's a give and take relationship here where it's like uh, i mean admittedly if somebody says something that immediately i think like oh you know that's dumb or like you know that goes against my aesthetics or my values or something like that you know i could just in a sense like play a very adversarial kind of attitude there is like oh you know that's that's dumb i could also play a yes and like you know like i'm not sure i buy it <laughs> but let's see if we can convince each other of this, you know, obviously maintaining critical thinking and, you know, you know, having like good boundaries between people and not just accepting whatever they say or anything of the sort. But yeah, I mean, basically having as a default, default attitude, a yes and kind of uh, attitude to, to new ideas and, and, uh, and concepts. And uh, this actually entails uh, something that is really difficult in this culture, like in the modern world more, more generally, which is um, being okay. <laughs> with people actually reading and thinking about material that, you know, uh, like sources of information that one may not respect very much. Um, because, yeah, if you want to have cognitive sovereignty, you need this kind of idea, you know, freedom or freedom of thought and feeling. Uh, you need to encourage people actually going out of their way to find completely new sources of information that are uncorrelated with kind of like standard narratives. And, and that's fine. That, that's actually something that ideally would be encouraged as much as possible. Um, and uh, I mean, I also say <laughs> um, one of the beautiful things about, you know, this kind of freedom of feeling and freedom of thought is that like, if I ever go to Joe Rogan, for example, I don't know what the chances of that are. Joe, <laughs> if you're watching this, I'm game for having a, a, a podcast with you. It would be a very fun conversation. We would, I would actually be able to say meaningful, new, non-trivial things about DMT that the audience would appreciate. And I bet, you know, he's not thinking about it in those terms, you know. Anyway, all of the videos I've done about DMT, including the, the Harvard talk on the hyperbolic geometry, I, I'd love to talk about that in Joe Rogan. And obviously, you know, talking about that takes a little bit of guts. But, you know, obviously this is kind of like my subject matter, something that interests me very deeply and I give a lot of thought. So that's not that big of a deal. But the thing that I can promise that this like freedom of feeling and freedom of thought actually gives me is that if I were to go on Joe Rogan or equivalent, I would have no qualms whatsoever about talking about, for example, wild animal suffering. You know, I'm not a hardcore wild animal suffering advocate, but it's like I see the arguments and the reasoning and it's like, yeah, it's actually a no brainer once you kind of like get a bigger picture about, you know, consciousness and valence and uh, species specific valence. And yeah, I mean, like probably there's a ton of suffering out there in uh, wild animals and 
yeah, just the fact that we are not quote unquote responsible for them, we're not causing it, doesn't absolve us from the responsibility of actually doing something about it. Again, I'm not advocating for any premature actions. I'm just saying this makes sense, you know, and I don't care. <laughs> I don't care if it doesn't make sense to the average person, to the average Joe Rogan, you know, uh, listener. It doesn't matter. <laughs> I will just say it, you know, and that I think is very precious. Actually, um, if you look at, you know, think tanks and organizations, um, you will generally see that very bold visions that get started oftentimes end up being like completely hedged because, you know, the PR department and the HR department of the organization and whatnot try to dumb it down and make it more, you know, palatable to, to the broader readership. And eventually the organization tends to adapt to basically whatever the culture wants. You know, we will say whatever people want to hear. <laughs> and at that point, what is the point? <laughs> what is the point of doing it? Again, let's think new thoughts and be bold. Not care. It does not matter if other people find it counterintuitive or weird or alienating. Of course, we have to be tactful. You know, that's obviously very important, being gentle and so on. But when it comes to censoring, you know, really important core ideas that don't harm people when you share them, yeah. Let's do it. <laughs> I'm in, you know, I promise. <laughs> I'll talk about that sort of stuff. Uh, it doesn't matter. Um, and yeah, like I'll do it in a playful, joyful, and actually really persuasive way. And, you know, all of that would not be possible without these very important attributes. Uh, and, you know, I'm sure I've not been perfect here in like, in the past of like, you know, shutting down ideas prematurely and, and so on. But no, I mean, I think like uh, as an organization and as a uh, basically, putting forth a vision of what a think tank, a good think tank would have. I mean, full support of, yeah, basically freedom of thought and freedom of feeling. Uh, number two is idea ownership. And this would be the kind of like adult, kind of like the, 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 the adult type of relationship. So again, we feed and nurture and love the inner child, but <laughs> we don't let the inner child you know, take control of the sheep, you know? No, 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 you, you, you still need an adult, actually. You need the adult in the room. And in this case, I would say that, uh, that the role of the adult in the room is to keep track of metadata. So this is, uh, sorry, uh, bit my tongue. This is very important that, um, um, you know, I'm sure you have been in, in like groups of people, you know, if, if you're interested in things like, uh, you know, rationality or science or, uh, or even, you know, you're very, you know, cog you have a lot of uh, what's called a, uh, a need for cognition is one of the, the psychological scales uh, we, we, we look at. If you have a lot of need for cognition um, and you're uh, in a certain social gathering, you, you will notice how there's a lot of variability in just how well people remember who said what. Uh, and in, in a lot of contexts, I mean, like this probably doesn't matter when it is like chit chat. It matters a lot when you actually want to set up a proper incentive structure in order to incentivize sharing new thoughts right like if you share new thoughts that are like original you know and it, you know it took you a lot of <laughs> a lot of jewels to come up with those thoughts and a lot of uh, you know attention and energy um and you you share them and then the people around it yeah like they adopt it but they forget that you came up with it or worse somebody you know takes credit for it or people just believe that it was somebody else um 
Yeah, that that's not a good incentive structure, you know, and that happens all the time. It, it, it really, obviously, it's a matter of uh, maturity and on, on some le some level, there's like ego things here. Um, but yeah, I mean, basically recognizing who came up with an idea. This is very tricky in some circumstances where basically the field is constructed by several people working together on it over a very long period of time where, you know, they kind of like share thought forms and oftentimes both people or three, whatever, however many people are doing these will all come up with like similar ideas roughly at the same time. And like at that point, actually, you should probably say, you know, the credit is the epistemological commons and the mutual energy that has been put into it. But, you know, that kind of conversation has to be possible. It has to happen. Um, on the flip side, you know, also in idea ownership, you, 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 part of the deal is to not be excessive in how you um, do this, right? Like you don't, uh, for example, like give thanks excessively or cite people excessively and expect others to recipro reciprocate it when actually there's not much of like real genuine idea being transferred here. Right, so there's a right balance. The right balance is going to be, in general, much more kind of like citation, much more like acknowledgement of people's ideas than how it is usually done in the wild. But it's not going to be something extremely restrictive where like, you know, everything that you said, you know, we take note and we, you, we make this huge chart and like people get super upset if you like forgot to cite them for some idea or something. No, that's, that's excessive and it's like silly, right? Like we don't want that either. But still, idea ownership is really, really important. And um, that would be part two. And I'll say, yeah, you know, it's kind of <laughs> being, being the, the adult in the room, the person who wears the hat in, in a way um, that, yeah, no, this idea, you know, it was John's idea. It was, you know, Jane's idea. And uh, I think maybe you added a little bit of an example, but the, the core idea was this other person. And also when you are like deeply in sync with, uh, with enough people, um, that are like actually thinking in at the same level as you. Um, yeah, that's something you can actually negotiate and and in a sense, like arrive at a, a sensible conclusion of like, what is the value add for a person? You know, and, and again, actually, I've seen these also happen in organizations where in order to be kind to people, you pretend that they are contributing more than they are. And unfortunately, that type of attitude is kind of poisonous for, for cognitive sovereignty because it dilutes the uh, merit of the people who are actually contributing the, the new ideas or you know taking people's ideas and forging them in, into something else. So anyway, uh, you know, kind of, uh, yeah, basically understanding the importance of kind of uh, keeping a track record and tra transactions here. So being the adult. Okay, but there's a, a third one. The third pillar is... Uh, which corresponds to being the a wise old you know uh, woman or man like you know a wise old person um, what is this this is information responsibility this is probably the trickiest <laughs> of, of, of the three uh, I mean I'll, I'll start with kind of like a quote by Eliezer Yudkowsky which is that every you know it's just as the Moore's law uh, was you know this idea that like every 18 months you get like twice as many transistors uh, per dollar or like per uh, square centimeter. Uh, likewise, uh, every 18 months, the minimum necessary IQ to destroy the world single-handedly uh, goes down by one point. <laughs> Meaning that, yeah, with the advancement of technology in a sense, like causing tremendous havoc, either intentionally or accidentally, uh, goes down. 
Um, I mean, of course, like these will be probably compensated by you know future control systems that we you know I'm sure a lot of crazy societal happens uh, societal um, transformations will happen within our lifetime. I mean, technology, yeah, crazy crazy ch changes. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, broadly speaking, um, if we stay as we are with a kind of like you know open science ideology and you know information wants to be free, if people have a an ideological um, affinity towards those ideas independent of like the nature of, of actually how dangerous ideas can be. Um, yeah, I think we are headed in a pretty dark direction, unfortunately. So um, I don't talk about these very often and there's a really good reason why actually I don't talk about these very often. But I, I did spend several years, uh, roughly between 2016 and 2019, really doing a lot of research on information hazards and how to minimize them. Um, <laughs> I must have written, yeah, I mean, almost a hundred pages uh, of, of documents on, on these uh, and ran like simulations, things such as like, you know, taking the empirical network of how people who contribute to relativity, uh, the field of, you know, relative, general relativity in physics and basically modeling how like, you know, information that is dangerous, if it arises independently in a couple of researchers, like, what are the conditions that would allow them to actually contain that information and preventing it from from being spread widely and here i mean unfortunately the the cards are stacked against us for a, a number of reasons uh but honestly the the biggest reason is a very silly aspect of human nature which is that we like to feel powerful we like to feel that our ideas have a lot of weight so there's this very unfortunate dynamic. Like if you think of, for example, within effective altruism, especially the, the subcomponent of uh, existential risk. Um, okay, like there's an existential risk organization out there, you know, you can apply to it and like maybe you get to work on existential risks and you know, that fulfills your feeling of meaning and, and importance, but okay, but what if they don't pay attention to you, right? How do you prove that you're a good existential risk researcher? Well, you have to show that you're able to come up with existential risks that nobody else is thinking about. And of course, ideally, you would figure out how to mitigate them as well. But uh, yeah, you know, like talent in coming up with existential risks is obviously an asset if you're like a responsible researcher in an org that takes information security seriously. It's a terrible skill to have if you're not in a container, in an appropriate container, right? It's like a horrifyingly bad idea <laughs> to just be, you know, talking online about ways in which the world can be destroyed more easily um, and obviously right now i'm not going to give you examples of these sorts of ideas i will give you a hypothetical example um, of something that you know will like very vaguely point at the class of things i'm thinking about um, but essentially imagine that you're kind of a uh, amateur um, you know network scientist and um, um, you decide to kind of like import the water pipe structure of San Francisco or something like that. You do network analysis, minimal cut analysis, whatever it may be, and you find out, oh my gosh, if you just cut these one, um, these one pipe over here, or you damage this one pipe, you know, like 45% of San Francisco is not going to have water for a month or something like that. It's like, oh my gosh, actually the system is super brittle. And it was a non-trivial thing to find because you require like network science. It was intractable otherwise. Maybe you came up with a new algorithm or a new, you know, heuristic and okay. But now you have this information that nobody else has that 
if it were to be out you know in the public it would cause a lot of damage potentially um so what do you do well the typical human the typical nerd the typical person who, who does this will actually give in to the desire to share it online in order to signal that they are clever that they are smart that they can think of consequential things i mean that's a part of the unfortunate kind of like shadow side here um but um and, and there's like plausible deniability because you can also say, you know, the reason why I'm talking about this is to raise awareness. And like, you know, some maybe somebody in the city of San Francisco, in the government will see this or we can sign a petition. But, you know, in the meantime, you're just like showing it to all of these people who might be bad actors that um, how to, you know, cut off the water of San Francisco for 45 days or like, sorry, 45 percent of the, the people for, for a month. Um, so things like that. But fractally, I mean, essentially, that, that's like kind of like happening all the time, constantly uh, right now, like across the world. It's just the incentives are set up such that, yeah, basically sharing dangerous ideas. I mean, and there's like things that are like completely appalling here. I mean, things like gain of function research, you know, being published in, in, in journals. Yeah, I mean, the incentives are such that like if you, you know, do good research, it's like, oh, my gosh, you can just do this very simple modification to the virus and it makes it 10 times more deadly don't put that in a journal we've got to find a new structure with actually a kind of like security clearance and you know really really high bar for the integrity of the people who engage in that sort of research um yeah basically <laughs> my my sense is that we are children at this point uh, as a humanity we have no idea of, uh, of what we're doing in this space um so uh information responsibility is absolutely essential for i would say like any cutting edge field uh i would definitely say like in the field of effective altruism and obviously the the sort of like interesting questions that uh you know we we pursue at, at quality research institute uh, so yeah that is wearing i'll i'll say yeah the 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 hat of of, of a wise man you know does not not try not trying to you know catch anybody's attention like boring ass hat but perfectly functional is not gonna fly away you can roll it up you know maximizing functionality without caring about visibility you know that is kind of the wise man or wise women uh, mindset that i think is very essential for for this line of work and uh definitely shifting the perspective from one of how do you minimize blame to how are you actually responsible for the things that you put out in the world now <laughs> my claim here is that these three pillars together essentially are profoundly synergistic. Why? Because you're not going to attract top talent, people who are actually capable of thinking new thoughts uh, and are really creative and like really want to do good things for the world if they don't feel that they will be able to actually share their cool ideas and be encouraged and loved because of them. Right? Like that's, a, that's kind of a, a very beautiful thing that it's, it's kind of a, a motivating, you know, this childlike wonder for exploring the mind and so on. But then once you're in that environment, you're not going to be very incentivized to actually share new ideas if you feel that people will be stealing them or taking credit for them or not properly acknowledging you or vice versa. You know, if people are too excessive in that dimension. Also, you're not very incentivized because you think, um, yeah, that's another way of kind of controlling you. So, uh, but yeah, uh, and furthermore, especially the more responsible people or the people who have like more kind of like a more fear response to, to novelty, they're also not going to be wanting to share ideas in that community if they feel that people will be irresponsible with them. 
So in that sense, uh, I think like they, they all come together and you're not going to have a high quality think tank without the three of them is my, my claim. And uh, if you see, you know, break, amazing breakthroughs that happened in the world in the past uh, from like various labs uh, or like various like research groups, um, I would claim that, you know, that's actually being going to be quite correlated with that. I mean, the quality of the geniuses that are doing the work, <laughs> that is obviously a huge factor. But then, you know, taking that into account, I think like uh, for them to actually collaborate with each other in a very, you know, po you know positive sum game uh, kind of way, I think then cognitive sovereignty is, you know, an additional very important container for that to happen. Anyway, that's a, that's a, uh, what I'm thinking about these days. Um, I'll be advocating for cognitive sovereignty in multiple ways, uh, but I just wanted to, to share it. Um, I will mention, I, I guess, like two things to, to end with, uh, which is um, how these may actually, you know, play out in practice, kind of like how do you see kind of this level of responsibility, but also openness and, and also like a give and take attitude uh, out there. So I was thinking of like, I mean, imagine the following scenario that like uh, we have, we're at a stage where we know enough about, you know, positive valence, the state space of consciousness, benevolence, that we can start to plan paradise, you know, legitimately starting to plan, not necessarily the end of, you know, the end all be all of paradise, but starting to really kind of like set up society such that like, you know, there's not going to be any more suffering um, because we have like technologically actually eliminated it. But also we are, you know, wire heading done right. We are super sane, you know, it's not a matter of like being crazy, uh, impulsive or whatnot, just, you know, freedom to explore the state space of consciousness, you know. Um, and, uh, and, you know, it's like, a, let's say like a 100 year project. And as part of it is kind of like, hey, we want consciousness to win. We are in team consciousness against, in a way, pure replicators that they just want to copy themselves independent of, you know, whether they cause suffering or whether they like agree with the values of consciousness at all or not. And um, so imagine we're doing that, you know, paradise engineering. And we, we are like now taking into account what are the possible replicators out there that might, you know, colonize the paradise and, and take, take it over. And, uh, and then it's, you know, it's bust. So <laughs> we have a model of those replicators, but maybe in the middle of it, as we're constructing, you know, the tower of paradise engineering or whatever it may be, uh, we start to realize that, well, actually the replicators have like adapted to some extent and now they are kind of like slightly different. So, uh, the general human impulse at that point, and you will you see these in like empires, you see these in like city planners and so on, is to literally to just power through and pretend that the problem is is not existent, because there's just so much you know emotional pain. Of course, in this situation, probably there, there will be the the analog of pain, a functional analog. But anyway, there's usually a lot of like psychological pain associated with just having to let go of a beautiful project you've been working on because all of a sudden you realize it's unsafe. Most people would power through, but the responsible thing to do would be, hey, this is not going to be perfect. There's a risk of replicator takeover. I'm sorry, let's dismantle it and try again. Now with an updated model of how these replicators actually work. And uh, in that sense, yeah, canceling paradise. And uh, if humanity is responsible, probably that will have to happen a couple times as you know like new replicators or crazy new like intelligent strategies for taking over you know by whatever means 
start to evolve in the new exotic environment that has been created through kind of like adapting the system towards something that is more, more geared towards paradise engineering. Um, so that's one. And then the other one, this also connects uh, to my grandfather to some extent, is uh, <laughs> um, multi-level selection. This is something that um, uh, I've been talking about with Mike Johnson, one of the collaborators, uh, co-founder of QRI. And uh, it's really cool that like, in, in a sense, um, and I'll talk more about this more in the future, but, but imagine the, the vision is that, okay, like one possible outcome in the universe is that we create hedonium, you know, just matter optimized for positive value, you know, positive valence and valence is, is a source of value. Okay, that might be the, the end all be all. Uh, but then uh, what if actually hedonium, you know, is very difficult to manufacture and is like completely very, very unstable. Um, so maybe it's something like you require some super specialized conditions to actually generate hedonium. Um, think of it as kind of like in a particle accelerator or a fusion reactor. You know, fusion doesn't happen out there, you know, in room temperature. You need to create these super specific conditions for fusion to happen. Well, likewise, I suspect, yeah, I mean, matter optimized for, you know, uh, like maximum bliss and maximum understanding, you know, maximum uh, energy of, of, uh, of happiness or whatever it may be that turns out to be the good. Well, uh, it may be a very special set of circumstances. It may not be something that you can tile the universe with. So, but the civilization could still, in a sense, use that as kind of the, 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 the crown jewel of its, you know, value. It's kind of like in almost kind of like, you know, ultimate consciousness incarnate is the crown jewel of our civilization. That, that could be, that could be. And in that world, you know, it's still paradise. It's still kind of like as good as it gets in a way. And ideally, everybody is also super happy in extraordinary ways. But if you were to kind of like take a picture of a part of that paradise, you will see that, hey, over here, you see a PhD student, you know, looking at some lenses and doing some diffraction experiments. And over here, you see like somebody, you know, just having, um, like, I don't know, like participating in some kind of collective like family raising operation etc etc you then over here you find kind of like the hardcore you know qualia researchers <laughs> people who are kind of like like particle physicists they're like exploring new ways of combining uh you know high energy qualia together um you know but but it's not you know it's kind of like this adjacent thing to hedonium you know is is not like optimized for hedonium maybe it's like optimized for like knowledge gathering or like information gathering uh and so on you know so this huge world would have so much detail and so much specificity but you zoom out and you realize how they're all harmonized and contributing together to the creation of this massive exploration of consciousness and the sustenance of ultimate consciousness or whatever it may be that you know ends up being like optimized you know hedonium so um multi-level selection i think is like that that like you really shouldn't try to think of paradise as kind of a homogeneous thing where like everybody is doing exactly the same thing all the time um uh or like some kind of like naive view of you know everybody's just free to do whatever they want either like kind of like just naive personal freedom or naive utilitarianism or naive virtue ethics or anything of the sort i think it's going to be much more complex i mean i would recommend watching the video advanced visions of paradise to kind of get a taste of how I'm approaching these problems th th these days. Um, but uh, with multi-level selection, basically we have to explore where freedom is best placed. 
And I, I will say, you know, for me, <laughs> I do have kind of a bit of a hardcore uh, individual freedom intuition, which is that I strongly believe that, you know, to participate in whatever social system should be a opt-in activity. Like you should not be forced to be part of any particular society. I mean, this is very idealistic, you know, it's not going to happen <laughs> this year or this decade at all, right? But ideally, I think it should be, everything should be opt-in. All of these societies should be opt-in. Of course, the society can choose whether to have you or not. That's also part of the right of, of the society. But, uh, but in a sense, like it's not going to force you to be part of it. And the second condition is kind of uh, the ability to say, I'm done, <laughs> pack your bags and leave. Basically, yeah, the ability to have a, a way out. Um, and I think that's also should be an inalienable right that resides at the individual level. But, you know, given those two rights, then I think actually it makes a lot of sense to place quite a bit of freedom at the organizational level, where in a sense, uh, the, it's the organization or is the society or the group that is uh, through whatever, you know, self-organizing principles it may have settled on. It will be exploring, you know, how to do social organization, how to assign roles, who does what, by what criteria we assign that and so on. So that it's not just chaos inside, you know, not everybody is trying to be the captain. Not everybody is trying to, you know, uh, I don't know, uh, do the Romeo and Juliet uh, scene all the time uh, sort of thing. So you, you actually want people who can take responsibility. Uh, I mean, obviously this is connect with, connected with information responsibility uh, at this level um, of cognitive sovereignty. But uh, if, if, you, if you don't have that, then you will have a permanent state of these, of, you know, the crab, crab bucket state, which is that if you put like one single crab in a bucket, it can climb all its, its way out. If you put a lot of crabs in the same bucket, they will try to use each other to climb out of the bucket and none of them will make it out. So um, things like that, you know, like when you have like people who are like very individualistic and sure, like very, they're able of think, thinking new thoughts, you know, but you put, and you put them in an environment where there's no information responsibility. Yeah, it, it doesn't work, right? Like they, 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 they will not be able to collaborate very well. Um, so I think like, yeah, basically kind of having this principle of, uh, liberty at the level of the organization where basically, yeah, you know, there's like some rules and this is how we assign tasks and, and whatnot. Uh, if you don't like it, it's fine. <laughs> you can leave anytime. And that is like up to you is 100% your right. Uh, but then also don't try to, you know, change what makes that particular organization work, you know, if empirically, you know, so, and my sense is that for us to actually arrive at like better high quality, high dimensional hedonium pursuing, you know, uh, modes of uh, social organization, we, we're going to need to do a lot of exploration, which is actually why I, I really personally enjoy a lot the aesthetic of something like seasteading, this idea that like, you know, we are uh, in a gridlock societally. Uh, and, you know, whenever there's a big social experiment, usually is like at a massive scale, not like tried out in small, you know, small scales first. Um, and it's like, there's no opt-in. Right, like, and no opt out, right? Like, you, if there's a revolution in your country, you know, it's oftentimes they're not going to allow you to leave. You know, it's like tyrannical that now you will be part of like whatever changed, whatever like new social system exists. And yeah, I don't think that's a good idea at all. You know, anyway, <laughs> my sensibilities is, is, is go pretty against kind of like a, any kind of like forced 
like part participation in any social system um and uh, yeah and essentially um i want the freedom to exist at the organizational level so that we can continue to guarantee cognitive sovereignty and actually be a beacon of high quality thoughts that are safe and properly attributed <laughs> so anyway that is a uh, that is the vision and uh, i mean for sure um if you are interested you know in actually contributing to the world with new thoughts with new ideas um i i do think essentially finding other people who are at your level is pretty much necessary and ideally people who've gone further so that they can mentor you in my experience for sure like the best conversations that happen uh about any topic really um not necessarily the most wholesome or heartwarming i, I just mean like the highest quality like objectively um when it comes to like new ideas and new information being being generated the, that tends to happen when everybody in the room actually shares a very large bulk of background philosophical assumptions and they're like basically uh, interacting in, in in good faith and they're friends <laughs> maybe they're high <laughs> actually you know that sort of circumstance is like very ideal for like high quality new idea generation and um uh and that's like very difficult to find again it's kind of like this uh a beach you know you need the equilibrium of a lot of forces for that to actually happen and one of the pillars goes out and then yeah the all the sand you know gets washed away and it's not a beach anymore you can't you can't see the sunset walking on the beach anymore it's very sad so um another thing i would say uh just kind of like concluding here is uh yeah i mean ea effective altruism for a while I would say like had a decent amount of cognitive sovereignty i mean i still respect like especially people uh, at ea there's a lot of incredible very altruistic very smart very awesome people in, in effective altruism but being, being completely honest here currently my assessment is that in effective altruism there are no new thoughts essentially a lot of thoughts became canonized and crystallized and when William McCaskill, sorry, William, <laughs> I really love you. I really love you. But when William McCaskill said in EA Global 2018, you know, and make sure to keep EA weird, like that is the moment where a lot of people in EA realized that it was not going to be weird anymore. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the moment you say that, and uh, no, I mean, just like the change in, uh, in, in the feel of, of the movement, that like, you, like new exotic ideas are just not encouraged. What's encouraged is basically me mainstreamizing the ideas that already exist and kind of like getting to the, the mainstream society with them and spread them around rather than like thinking fundamentally new thoughts. So, which is very sad, very sad. I'm still optimistic. William McCaskill, if, if, you're, if you're hearing this, I'd love to have a conversation um, about this. But yeah, anyway, um, let's uh, uh, keep having cognitive sovereignty and cultivating it. And uh, if you want to be a, a deep collaborator with Qualia Research Institute or honestly any high quality think tank in the future, I recommend that A, you, you, you kind of like show to people like the new thoughts that you can have uh have a portfolio portfolio of projects um you know show that you can actually think in a way that is uncorrelated not just putting a lot of buzzwords and 
you know, put them, no, actually like showing that you can think new thoughts. Second, uh, show that you can attribute, you know, that you read a lot, you, that you actually consume a lot, a lot of people's ideas and that you can link to them at the very least, if not actually talk about that explicitly and, uh, and, and share that. Um, and finally, yeah, show you're responsible. Like if I find somebody who is like, hey, very smart and maybe even also like gives a lot of attributions that are like fair and not excessive and so on, but is like a super edgy, hyper-political person, I'm probably not going to want to collaborate with that person in the future, uh, not at deep level. And I mean, maybe if I, there's some kind of like convincing that actually that was like a phase and the person is over it. But oftentimes those are kind of like enduring personality traits. And uh, that type of uh, attitude, I don't think is compatible with like working at a, at a think tank where there is a certain probability of encountering like information that might just not be good to, to share wildly or widely. So um, yeah, I mean, that's my advice, uh, you know, for all of you, uh, you know, people who are like working on creating your career of your dreams and you want to contribute new thoughts to society, um, do that, you know, show that you can actually be a high level player that, you know, engages in cognitive sovereignty. Um, and I think that's, uh, that's about it. I mean, I, I, uh, I want to thank, yeah, everybody at QRI, uh, yeah, I mean, especially uh, Mike and, and, uh, and Zoc and Quentin, uh, also, yeah, Sean and Mackenzie, um, Anders and Maggie, and of course, you know, all of our advisors and, and, and people who are, who are helping us, uh, uh, David Pierce, for example, amazing conversations, huge influence, and uh, yeah, let's uh, make a beautiful beacon of new, <laughs> safe, fun, and pro-social ideas that we take responsibility for. All right, infinite bliss, everybody, and I'll talk to you another time about another topic. Ciao.